0: Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a truly epic plan that God has for us. And uh, so we're going to cover a lot of material, I'm going to try to keep it focused here and not go on any bunny trails, but uh, we're going to dive into the Word. We've got some really important things to look at today as we continue to in our series called Unstuck, and we're looking at the life of David. And uh, actually today we're going to be primarily looking at God's covenant with David, called the Davidic covenant, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So, A lot has happened leading up to this point. Um, 2 Samuel begins with David's struggle with King Saul. King Saul and his army have been in pursuit of David, trying to kill him. This has been going on for quite some time. These battles have ensued, and for several years, it's been quite stressful, I'm sure, for David, running for his life, hiding in caves, and you can read the story. It's pretty epic in itself, but... uh, Many battles happen, and finally the big battle, of course, Philistines were always involved in different things like that, but David, King Saul, and David actually, or King Saul and his son, Jonathan, actually end up being killed in battle. So that kind of brings us to this point. David mourns their loss, their death, kind of shows you his heart. Uh, He was always walking in forgiveness, but uh, conflict follows. David is then anointed as king of Judah. Then Abner, the commander of Saul's army, does something really stupid. He makes Ishbal, which was Saul's son, king of Israel. Of course, that resulted in a war with Israel and Judah now. Now, this just made eventually David stronger. Abner eventually defects to David Much more treason, fighting, deaths happen, conflict happens, inner turmoil happens. I'm not going to go through all the names and everything that happens. It can get confusing. But here's how it ended. Uh, The death of Abner and Ishmael, which was King Saul's son, led to David becoming king of Israel as well as Judah. So then now Jerusalem becomes the capital of the kingdom, of his kingdom. And David builds himself a house. The Philistines, you know, rise up against David again, of course, and he defeats them with God's help. So David is quite popular at this time. He's the reigning king, and everybody loves him, and things are going wonderful and great for him. As a matter of fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, he brings the ark up into Jerusalem. This is a huge, massive, all-out celebration. I mean, this is epic. And David is so excited, he demonstrates his heart before God, he was a man after God's own heart, that he dances and whirls and leaps before the ark and just carries on unashamedly before all the people. Can you just picture this king? This is the king, humbling himself, dancing and leaping and whirling as the ark is being brought in. But it says that Michael, Saul's daughter, who was David's wife, looked at him through the window and says that she despised him. Later, she she subtly, kind of sarcastically rebukes David for his actions of dancing before the Lord. And David's response to her was, I will become even more undignified before my God. I will humble myself before all the people to celebrate the goodness of God. And then these... Solemn words were spoken concerning Michael after that comment. She remained without child. No children till the day of her death. She was barren. Which gives you this picture of someone who refuses to uh, submit to the lordship of God, Christ, and worship. There's a sense of barrenness that takes over our lives of joylessness and fruitlessness and lifelessness. Does that make sense? Why it's so important for us, you and I, to become a people of worship, a people who would abandon ourselves before the Lord, and without the fear of man, whatever may think or consider, we would just honor him. That's where life happens, the life flow of the Spirit. Well, that brings us to chapter 7 where God makes this covenant with David. It's the Davidic covenant. Now, this is the first time, well, actually it isn't, but let me, what I'm going to do is there's five covenants in the Bible and I'm going to hit on all of them so we can find the role of this covenant in the midst of them. I think it's important to put all the puzzle pieces together. Because the first covenant appears with Noah. We know that one, the flood, Genesis chapter 6, and then through to Genesis chapter 9 is where God establishes a Covenant with Noah. Theologians would call it the universal covenant. Then after that, there's the Abrahamic covenant through uh, Abraham, which leads us to, after that, the Mosaic covenant with Moses, and then, of course, the Davidic covenant, and then after that, the new covenant, Jesus Christ. And there's five of them in there. So it begins with Noah, and then Abraham, Moses, David, and then Jesus. Three of those five are unconditional. The first covenant God made with Noah, this universal covenant, was with Noah and all the descendants of Noah. It was the unconditional covenant. Um, The Mosaic covenant with Moses next was a conditional covenant, obviously, keeping the law. Then the Davidic covenant, unconditional. And we'll, we'll put these up one at a time as we begin to go through them. Uh, and then, of course, the Jesus covenant, which was conditional. Yes, Jesus, the New Testament, is a conditional covenant. So you need to find out how you can get in on that, and we're going to make sure we talk about that. But the first one, this Noahic covenant, that's the way I kind of like to do it, (laughs) um, is the unconditional covenant, the universal covenant, and, of course, it came, Genesis chapter 9. After the flood destroyed the whole earth, every inhabitant, living creatures, beasts of the field, everything, man, the flood wiped everything out, whole story behind that. And then God comes to Noah and says, I will establish a covenant with you. God said, this is my covenant and I'm going to do this. It's not your covenant. It's my covenant. I always uphold my covenants and I'm going to establish this with you, your descendants after you, all of us, that includes you and me today, we're in on that covenant as well as your pets. Isn't that Cool. Your pets, your dogs, your cats, you love your pets, right? Well, they get in on this too. Every living creature. See, this, is, this was the living covenant that uh, God establishes this. And never again will all flesh be wiped out by floodwaters. Never again will the earth be destroyed by a flood. That's what's the ultimate covenant. God said this. He says, you know what? I'm going to put a sign in the sky in the clouds so that you'll know this is an everlasting covenant. And you see a rainbow and it reminds us of that. Now the world has tried to hijack the rainbow, right? Like the devil tries to hijack everything and pervert everything that God created and was good to begin with. Well, we we just forbid that. The rainbow is about the covenant that God will never destroy the earth again. And so you and I are in on that. That's an unconditional covenant. And why do they call it the universal covenant? Well, this is why, because universal laws of God, uh, there are some universal laws of God that you just can't break. For instance, you can't break the universal law of gravity. You jump out a window, you're going to fall. You can't break that. And this is the universal covenant that God made uh, that there'll never be another flood to wipe out the earth. Okay, Uh, let's go to the next one, the Abrahamic covenant. This is also an unconditional covenant. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 17. And uh, this, is again, is something that God made. God makes his covenants. He upholds his end of the deal. He always does. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham, and your descendants forever. I will multiply you exceedingly, he said. Uh, he said, I'm, uh, my covenant is with you, and you, will, uh, you shall be father of many nations, as the stars are in the sky and the sand of the seashore. That's my covenant to you. Abraham simply believed. And it was credited to him as righteous. You and I are sons and daughters of Abraham because we believe in Jesus Christ. It's credited to us as unto righteousness, as a seed of Abraham, all right? The seed faith. This was all about faith. Again, this wasn't based on their behavior. It was based on their belief. Just like your covenant with Jesus Christ is not based on your behavior. Did you get that? We'll talk more about that later. It's based on your belief. That's important. We get that backwards. Now, Abraham, uh, God says, I'm gonna do my part. Abraham, you don't really have to do anything. As a matter of fact, when God gives makes this covenant with Abraham, he's sleeping. He's like, Pfft. you know, he wakes up, oh, I'm I'm in covenant. <laughs> wow, God did it all. You say, well, Abraham had to do his part. He had to be with Sarah to have a son. Well, actually, it's been proven that God can impregnate a woman without a man. You know that, don't you? As a matter of fact, Abraham and Sarah were far beyond childbearing years. It was a miracle that they had the miracle son, Isaac. Yes, this was all God. He, and so let's look at the next one. We're going to skip over the Mosaic, Mo, Moses, the Old Testament, just for a moment. Because the, we'll look at the Davidic covenant just for a moment here, which is also unconditional. These are the three unconditional ones. And uh, you see that in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Matter of fact, let me just, we'll just put this verse up there. 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7. Because points back to this covenant. and says, yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and said he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Did you get that? In other words, God says basically that through your generation lineage, David, the Messiah will be given to the world the light of the world. And his lamp will shine and flame forward. And you will have a lamp in your generation, every generation. And because of that Davidic covenant, you and I, because Jesus was born, the son of David, we get to have a lamp in our generation as well that will flame forward to every generation following us. That's God's covenant. And we get to jump in on that. So here it is, this unconditional covenant. And the reason why I say it's on belief, not their behavior, is really important. This unconditional. It's based on their belief Uh, because uh, God's going to enforce these covenants that he made with Noah and uh, Abraham and David, regardless of actually what they did. God says, I'm always going to do my part. And you could just look at their behavior. I mean, Noah has this covenant, right? And then he gets drunk, makes some really bad mistakes, but God still keeps his covenant. Look at Abraham. What's he do? He goes and lies with his maidservant, Hagar, to try to fulfill this prophecy of a son. And Ishmael is given birth, right? Steps outside of God's will in that situation, yet God still upholds his end of the deal and keeps his covenant, and Isaac is born. Look at David. He sins with Bathsheba, and then with Uriah, her husband, has her murdered and has a child out of wedlock, and all this stuff happens, and what does God do? He still upholds his covenant. And Jesus is born. Pretty amazing. Isn't God amazing? He is faithful. He is faithful. He continues to uphold his deal. There's a time when uh, Israel, <coughs> no, not Israel. Yes, Israel. They broke covenant with God. They just kept doing that over and over again. As a matter of fact, one time, God's getting accused of breaking the covenant. And Jeremiah, the prophet, writes down. He says, God said this, show me your certificate of divorce. Divorce. Show me where I divorced you because I didn't break my covenant, although you've been committing adultery on me. In other words, God says, Israel, you've been chasing after other gods for a long time. You're the one who keeps breaking covenant. God remains faithful. And he still remains faithful to this day. God is faithful, we're not. That's just the bottom line. And so these are unconditional covenants. But then let's look at the Mosaic covenant. The Bible says that one has become obsolete. It's the obsolete covenant, the mosaic, which is conditional. Now, this covenant God made with Moses, referring, obviously, to the Old Covenant the Old Testament. And the reason why we call it obsolete is because it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, we'll read that, put that up here. It says, in that he says, a new covenant he has made with the first obsolete. There it is. The old is becoming obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete? And growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, if you back up a few verses in verse 6 and 7 of the same chapter of Hebrews, it says this, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he, speaking of Jesus, is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. He says that that first covenant would have worked. We would need a second covenant. But they found fault with the first covenant. You know what the fault was, don't you? The people couldn't continue in it. They just couldn't do it. They, they couldn't pull it off. I mean, look at their response to Moses. I'll just read it in Exodus 24-7. Moses stands up. He reads the book of the law in the hearing of all the people. And what they say? They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. We're in on this. We'll be obedient. We will obey. What's interesting, though, is when the Lord, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, remember on Mount Sinai, Cecil DeMille, whatever his name is, and Charlton Heston, remember that? He's up there on the mountain, right? Well, this is Moses. Ten Commandments are happening. What are they doing at the bottom of the mountain? Yeah, Moses, you're taking so long. We're going to take matters in our own hands. So they all get drunk, have a big party, commit fornicate and all that stuff, and build a golden calf. So they're getting the law on the mountain, and they're down at the bottom of the mountain already breaking three or four of the laws. It's like these people are nuts. They, don't, they can't get it together, right? And God says, here's my covenant. Moses says, here it is. You do everything in it. And the people go, well, okay, we got this. Well, they've already blown it. <laughs> you know, they can't, nobody can pull it off. No human can pull off this covenant, so what was the purpose of the law then? are why in the world God did you put this on us if we can't fulfill it? Well, look at Galatians 3:19 says, says this. What purpose then does the law serve? You're probably asking that same question. It was added because of transgressions. Remember that word transgressions. I'll explain that. Till the seed speaking of Jesus could come, would come to whom the promise was made. The word transgressions. We know what that means for us? Trespass Right? Now, you don't know if you're trespassing if you don't know where the line is that you're going to step over, right? There's the property line. No trespassing. Well, I don't know where is it. I don't know where it is. And so this is, like, this is how Paul said it. Paul said it this way. I, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to covet until the law told me, thou shalt not covet. And it's like, ah, oh, now that the law told me not to covet, now I know covet's a sin and I'm not supposed to trespass. I'm not supposed to step over that line. But if you don't know that's wrong, you don't know where the line is. So God says it like this, because you kept trespassing, you kept stepping over the line, I decided it was time to tell you where the line was. That's what I decided to do. That's what the law does. The law doesn't give you any power not to step over the line, but it tells you, here's the line. Don't go there. So ultimately, the law shows us how messed up we are, right? How bad we've blown it. But what does the law also do is the law points you to Jesus who can help you fulfill what he's called you to fulfill. That's ultimately the purpose of the law. All right? Show you how lost we are. So the law says you can't do this, you can't go that way, but you know what? It gives you no power at all to fulfill it, zero, none. But then Jesus brings in this new covenant that we'll look at here again at the end, the new covenant in Jesus Christ, which is conditional. It's also a conditional covenant. Now, the old covenant was conditioned upon you keeping the law, which we weren't able to do. So we look at the condition of the new covenant. That's what we need to do. But let me show you first the the difference between the Old and the New Covenant, so we can really understand this, because there's a major difference here. And we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 8. I would encourage you to read through Hebrews and spend some time in chapter 8. It's really amazing. Verse 8 and 10 says this, "...because finding fault with them, he said this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah." Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and those in the days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God says, I will call them into relationship with me by a transformation of their own hearts where they will know from within what to do and I will empower them and that will work its way out to live the way I've called them to live. So there's a difference here, the old covenant and the new covenant. Now when it says the old covenant, it's referring referring again to the mosaic, right? The law that Moses brought. Now the difference is that the old, again, told you not what to do, but the new gives you the power to live a holy life. Like it says in Titus, to live righteously and soberly in this present day. The only thing that gives you power, the only way you get the power to fulfill is, well, we're going to look at that. What gives you the power? How, How are you able to pull this off? Well, let me contrast and compare the two for a moment. Stick with me on this, okay? The giving of the law, and then you have the giving of the Spirit. Two different things here. When the law was given on Mount Sinai, remember Moses goes up there and there's thunder and there's sounds of heaven and there's fire over the mountain, right? And people wouldn't even approach the mountain. They were afraid to. And up there on that mountain, Moses receives the 10 commandments, Boom! tablets of stone. He carries them down. And when he gets to the bottom of the mountain, he sees that they're all fornicating and they made a golden idol and it's, it's all bad. Read the story. What happens? God brings judgment. How many died? 3,000. That's not too good, is it? The law is given and 3,000 die. Death. What happens on the day of Pentecost? When the 120 are in the upper room, there's a sound of heaven, the rushing wind. There's tongues of fire released on their heads. Sounds familiar. And then the Spirit was given. And the laws are written on their hearts. Transformation happens. Peter gets up and preaches and 3,000 don't die, but 3,000 get saved. Isn't that amazing? The Spirit gives life. This is where we're going. The Spirit was given and life happens. So the law brought this sense of death, but the Spirit brings life. That's why Romans says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter of the law, oh, it's hard. I can't do this. We can't live under that because there's no life in it. That's why the law says, go there, run to Jesus, be filled with the Spirit, and I will empower you and enable you. You see the stark difference here. It's really not that different. I mean, difficult to understand, really, when you just look at the the biblical passages. There's many, many others. So now I know where the lines are, but I got the power of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life life, to serve Jesus the way he's called me to serve him. That doesn't mean I'm never going to cross the line or fall or mess up. But even if that happens, you need to understand that God will never break his end of the deal in the covenant. You enter this covenant with Jesus Christ, he'll always keep his deal under the deal. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. When you have Jesus in you, he will not deny himself. He will continue to do whatever he needs to do on his end to help you respond correctly. Now, can we jump back to the Davidic covenant? We're going to see how this plays in. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, we'll start there. It says, Now it came to pass that the king was dwelling in his house. This is good times. And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. That the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in the house of Cedar, but the ark dwells inside tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all this in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay, so here it is. David was a warrior from, from his youth. He killed a lion. He killed a bear. Last week, we talked about how he took down Goliath. And then he continues to uh, fight the Philistines and win battle after battle with God's help. And now he's finally enjoying this period of peace. He can sit back and take a breather, man. He can just rest and consider, you know, how could we bless and how can we help the people uh, of Israel and improve their lives. How can we better serve God? This temporary peace is wonderful because later more battles will come. But this is the first also mention of Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. David obviously respected him as a prophet. Later Nathan approaches David. We'll talk about that next week with what he did with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, and it was a complete and utter disaster. And Nathan has to move in at that point and confront. But Dave, Dave, uh, David says to Nathan, look, I dwell in this cedar house, and the ark dwells in these curtains, the ark of God. And David is contrasting this palatial, wonderful mansion that he has for himself, and he says, but God is in this tent. And so obviously his intent was to build a temple for God to dwell in. This, he wants to establish a place for God. Now, Think of, let's just look at the setting at this time. Now, back then, pagan kings often built palaces uh, and uh, temples for their gods in, as a way to secure their God's favor. This is some of the surroundings. Uh, could it be possible that David was thinking, I would like to have more favor with God? Is there a way I can play a hand in that maybe? Possibly? Is there a way I could do something that would just please God? And later even go, good job, David. You did real good. You are shiny for God right now. I don't know. Could it be that David was somehow wanting to earn a little bit more favor from God? Um, Well, let's let's continue with this and we'll find out where this goes because it's interesting because Nathan tells him to go ahead and do all that's in your heart. But then Nathan spoke too soon because later that night, he gets a vision from God. Verse 4 and 5, it says, it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Like what? Are you kidding? Look at verse 8 and 11. Now therefore, thus says the Lord to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. More so over, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they will, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of the wickedness oppress them anymore. As previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make for you a house. God says, you, shall you build me a house for me to dwell in? Now, the implication, even if you look at First Chronicles, that David was unworthy in a sense to even go there because... God, in a sense, well, David um, it says he had much blood on his hands from all the wars he fought. In a sense, this is something your son will do because he will be in a time of peace. So he gives that assignment to Solomon. But why does David suddenly think, on his own initiative, that he could replace this God-ordained tabernacle that's already been set up with this humans-inspired temple built by hands of men through David's inspiration. Why does David suddenly think, now, what does God do? God reminds David that it was God who brought him from the sheepfold to rule. It was God who cut off all his enemies. It was God who ultimately made his name great. It was God who was establishing his people. David has basically been along for the ride. He basically stood up one day and said yes to God, and God took him in and began to give him victory after victory and began to shape him and to move him forward. David had the privilege of joining God in this incredible journey and destiny that he had for him, ultimately, even for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to be given birth in his his lineage. That was God's doing. Yet, was it tempting? Was, it, was David tempted at some point to somehow maybe play his hand in some of this? Can I just, God, step forward for one moment here and shine? Can I just pull myself up with my own bootstraps for a moment? I would like to kind of do something here. Because, I don't know, I, I, I know this. David had really good intentions. He did love God. His motives could have been very pure, but he wasn't allowed to do it. And God reminds him of all that God has done. And could there have been a place of even self deception in David lurking? And the reason why I'm breaking this up because it so easily can happen to all of us, every one of us. We're following Jesus, we love Jesus. But something in us says, boy, I think I could have a hand in this. God, I think I need to help you out because I'm not really sure I'm doing my part. Look, what does it say Galatians 3.3? It says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, now being made perfected in the flesh? What you come to Jesus through this incredible gift of salvation, this, this wonderful, glorious gift, Do we switch midstream and begin to all of a sudden revert back to, in the sense, the mosaic way of doing things, earning our way, measuring up? It can happen so easy. God, let me help you out a minute to make myself look just a little bit better. We need to remind ourselves that I'm not saved by good works, but I'm saved for good works. Performance mentality, though, can take over. Good works and good fruit are meant to flow out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8.9 says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There's always a tendency for that sense of boasting to want to step in, right? Uh, There's a tendency to revert back to my ability to earn favor with God, and I think it can be in all of us. You can follow Jesus for a long time and and slip back into a performance mentality. Uh, There's a constant propensity, I think, in all of us who have been born again to slide back into that sense of striving to earn something. Because, look, in our minds and our spirits, we know the free gift of salvation. We understand that. But deep in the recesses of our hearts, there's this desire, this something that wants to percolate up, that says, I want to find some favor. And the only way I know to do that is just to perform a little better. Now, we are called to serve and we're called to live out our purpose before God and to enjoy Him in that. But how often does it flow from a wrong motive? Where instead of doing it out of His love, I begin to switch somewhere along the line and start doing it for His love. I mean, that's a fine line. It's easy to fall back into that. Is it just me? Well, let let me just push on this just a little bit more to get us to think about this. So I don't believe we understand all the time how serious this is and how easy this can happen. But we are conditioned, even as children, this gets built into us. If I don't do right, then I won't be loved and I won't be affirmed. If I can't be like mommy and daddy once, then I won't belong. Instead of this sense of restfulness and acceptance and confidence, oh God, that everything between me and you is okay, there's a sense of fear and anxiety that can begin to slip in. It creeps in, and then I find myself striving a bit more to get the approval that I'm longing for, the acceptance. If I could just perform a little better. And this could be so unintentional. It could be so unintentional. We can even say to our kids, boy, you really did good today. Mommy really loves you. And that's true. Mommy does love you. And maybe we have that echoing in our hearts. But what happens in our childish minds that we connect performing with love and approval, and then we, we start to arrive with, if I don't do right, mommy won't love me. And we all know that's not true. But I'm talking about how the enemy can take it even with children and twist things to a point, seed things in our life. So later on, when we grow up, we kind of want to slip back into that. It's so subtle. I think it's often good, and we used to do this with our kids at times, just stop and say, you know what, mommy loves you, or or daddy loves you because you're mine, you're my child. You know that, don't you? Not because of anything you're doing. And just remind them of that and press that into them. And so that becomes more of a reflex than, oh, if I just don't quite do what I'm supposed to do, then... There might be a risk. As adult, adults, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, it can be very difficult to grasp this. Um, I, I cannot be loved unless I perform correctly. And it, it can even come to a place where we believe that not performing then earns me rejection. And, and if someone uh, even gives us love, then, well, I'm not sure I deserve that love. Now, I know parents don't intend to teach their children these kind of things, but it, you know, just, it just happens over time. It can be so subtle. If you've, now, if you've grown up in a very toxic environment where there's been abuse and rejection and abandonment and pain and ongoing uh, kind of junk, that, that toxic environment... That just compounds this because you're already going to have a low self-esteem and you're already, because of all that abuse you've been under, going to be thinking, I'm just not sure I'm worthy anyway because I've been rejected and I've had to deal with all this kind of stuff. And then I'm always going to have this propensity to think I'm not good enough and, and I, 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 nothing I ever do will be good enough and so I do need to earn something and we project all that abusive authority onto God and His authority. And now God has already kind of positioned himself against me. So this is really going to be a tough one, a tough battle. And much like David, I think we need to be reminded that it is God who saves us. That it is his finished work on the cross, not my good works and it's God who's going to establish me and God who strengthens me and God who loves me and every morning when I wake up his mercies are going to be new to me every single day because it's Jesus who's going to complete the good work in me that he has already started and it's Jesus who has made me positionally right with God I am fully accepted and made righteous in God now my performance not may that good and may have a lot of issues but positionally Jesus has done it all and i need to remind myself that it's him and i am secure in him and he's always going to be faithful he'll always keep his end of the deal he has positioned himself for me he is with me you know what religion does religion hangs on to god somehow but faith god hangs on to you he's got you he's got this god does And it's, it's, religion is striving, there's fear, and there's false guilt, and we're never good enough, and we can never quite make it, and, but the faith says, you know, there's rest, and there's peace, because you realize that God can do a whole lot better job than we can. Amen? He does a whole lot better job with us than we can do with us. And in faith, we're loved, we're accepted. We're chosen. We might temporarily fall out of fellowship, but we're never out of relationship. And we never fall out of his love. And when you think you have, you know what he does? He comes and gets us. He comes and shows up and reminds us you're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter. Not because of anything you do or any kind of behavior. Just look at Abraham, look at Moses, and look at David. They all messed up, and I kept my end of the deal. And you might be in my covenant through my son, Jesus Christ, but you know what? I'm keeping my end of the deal, and I love you, and I got this. And like David, we need to have those reminders that Jesus pursued us, and he saved us through the cross, and he has secured us, and he's transforming us. And we're on this great and grand mission that we have joined God in that he's invited us into to live out his purpose with the power of the Holy Spirit in and through us, and we get to accomplish everything he's called us to accomplish because of what he is doing in us and through us. Okay, we got to finish out this covenant. I don't know if I have time to read through the whole thing, but verse 11 through 17. says, Since the time I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you, that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and the rest of your, and you rest with your father, there's all set for you, your seed after you. And then he goes in and talks about Solomon, who eventually will build the, the house for God. And we'll jump back down to the end of that. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever according to all the words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Now, the immediate fulfillment of this promise was to be accomplished through David's son Solomon. But the more significant fulfillment of the promise will await Jesus Christ, who, he said, will build a house of God forever. Your throne will be established forever. What does it say in Matthew 1.1? It says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Luke one thirty two. he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And there's many other scriptures where Jesus is ongoingly referred to the son of David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. And this leads us to the place where, yes, there was uh, what appeared on the surface, the simple uh, promise of David's dynasty but it actually means a whole lot more than that, much more significant. It means the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ that would be established forever and fulfilled through the Davidic covenant. So Jesus comes and establishes this new covenant. And I said it's conditional. You're probably wondering, okay, I thought this was a free gift. Oh, it is, but there's a condition. You know what the condition is? You got to believe. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. And when you do... It's credited to you, it's righteousness. When you believe that Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Lord, came, suffered, died, took your sins upon himself, rose from, again from the dead as the righteous son of God, took our place, believe on him and you shall be saved, the Bible says. I'm going to give you one more couple of verses. Are you ready? Stay with me. Verse 16 and 17 of Hebrews 9. For where there is a testament or covenant... There must also be, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator or the death of the person who made the covenant. For a testament or covenant is in force after men are dead, since it is it has no power at all while the one who made the covenant or the testator lives. In other words, Paul says this a covenant's been made. For that covenant to be enacted, the one who made the covenant's got to die. You want to enter into that covenant? You want to enter into that covenant? You got to die. That's the condition. The new covenant's conditional. The one condition on entering the new covenant, are you ready? This is ultimately it. It's death. It's death. You have to die. You have to die. I have to die. I'm not talking about a physical death here. I'm talking about being born again. Being born again. The death of self, the death to your will, the same death that Jesus died in the garden when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That's what we're talking about. That's the only thing you have to do. You have to die to self, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, surrender to Jesus, let him live through you. That's all you got to do, and he'll do the rest. He'll always end up holding, upholding the rest of the deal. I'll have the worship team make their way out. So a covenant, this covenant has no power until both people who make it die. We know that Jesus already died and rose from the grave. So you won't enter the covenant until you die. And when you enter the covenant, God is faithful. Let me say it this way. We'll put it up here. The new covenant is a conditional covenant. Got that? It's conditional. But it's based upon an unconditional promise. You know what that unconditional promise is? I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you, because I will always uphold my end of the deal. You don't have to worry if God's going to be faithful. He'll be faithful. God will do His part. He's proven that down through the centuries. If you don't do, uh, if you don't do your part once you enter the covenant, how many know when you've come to Jesus? A lot of times we don't do our part. What does Jesus do? He remains faithful he's still going to uphold his end of the deal. And he still works with us. In other words, once you die to self, once you surrender to Jesus Christ, there's no more striving that we talked about. There's no more fear of measuring up. There's no more earning favor. There's no more performing perfectly. It's about dying even to all of that stuff. Do you know when you, you have to die, divide your own performance? That's every bit as important as to dying to our own self and sin. It is. Because the Bible says our works are as filthy as rags. God says, I don't want that. It doesn't work. So this is about me keeping my end of the deal. You just come along and join me. And surrender. Die to all that. Die to our own efforts. Die to our own will. Die to our striving. Die to our guilt, our sin, our performance. And trust in Jesus. Why Jesus says, those want to be my disciples. They must come to me and take up the cross and just follow me. Whenever you tape up, tape up a cross, how many know there's a dying and happening when you do that? Jesus went to the cross. He died and rose from the grave. When we come to the cross in every situation, if you're up against a difficult situation, you don't know what to do, say, okay, God, I'm going to take up my cross here. Where do I need to die? Is there pride I need to die to? Is there self-motives I need to die to? Is there something in here that I just need to lay down so that you can come alive? Your resurrection power can surface through all this. Your miracle work can happen through it all. So we die to our performance and we trust Jesus. If you don't get anything else out of this message, get this. God loves you even when you're bad. Isn't that cool? And there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. <laughs> you just you are trapped by his love. You are pursued by his love. He chases you down when you forget it. He will corner you with his love and say, "I love you and it's not because of anything you're going to do. It's because you're mine." Remind your children of that. Remind your grandkids of that. Just pull them aside and say, "Hey, I just want to make sure you understand this. I love you because you're my son, I love you because you're my daughter, not because of anything you're doing, just because you're mine. And you know what, God feels the same thing way about you and I don't ever want you to forget that no matter what happens in life. You know, that can really help a kid when he gets older, when he gets about our age in here and we have a really bad day and we feel really guilty and then we think, well, I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm gonna get up and read my Bible for three hours just to make up for it. What'd we do? We just slipped right back into that whole striving, fear, anxiety, when God says, just stop, just come to me. I understand, you made a mistake, but I see your heart. You're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. Let's just move forward. Wouldn't that be so much easier if we did that? I hope you're getting this. Are you getting it? Good, then let's stand, I'll stop. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm just gonna pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word today. And Lord, this may seem so simple on the surface, but Lord, we know that from day to day where the rubber meets the road, these are fundamental truths that we have to wrestle with. Lord, we want to be the kind of people that simply live out of your love, live out of the outflow of your love, not living for your love or trying to earn it somehow, just simply finding that place of rest daily in you, Jesus. Lord, help us to die where we need to die. Help us to lay down our lives and let you be great. Help us, Lord Jesus, to end those areas of our life where there's so much striving so that the resurrection power of your spirit could thrive. Lord, I want to be like that well-watered garden that's fruitful. There's fruit everywhere. There's life flowing. It's not barren, but it's full of life, full of joy, full of peace. Lord, we just right now in a fresh way, all of us here, we just surrender our lives to you. Die to ourselves. We die to our strivings. We die to our guilt. We die to those mistakes we made this week. We die to the notion that somehow we can better ourselves because of the wrong we've done. We die to that, and we receive your grace and your love right now. Just go ahead and do that right now. Say, Lord, I receive your love. I receive your grace. I receive the fresh touch of the Holy Spirit in my life right now. I receive the affirmation of God in my life. I receive that inflow of your glory, your goodness, your mercies that are new every day, Lord Jesus. And Lord, if there's an area I'm walking in that I am in outright rebellion, I will gladly bow my knee and repent and say, "I'm sorry, Lord. I turn from that." But that's the only thing I can do, and you're going to do the rest. And I receive forgiveness, Lord, in those areas. Matter of fact, let you just do that right now. Just. Lord, in that area of my life that I've really messed up, Lord, I am repent. I'm sorry. I just renounce that. And I receive the fresh flow of your forgiveness in my life right now. I thank you. I just got to witness of the Holy Spirit right now that somebody's, some of you are doing that right now. and God is touching you and saying, it's okay. That's all I'm calling you to do. Just turn away from that. Turn to me and let his life and his empowerment work through you to transform you. You can't box and white-knuckle that thing away. You have to surrender to Jesus and die. Lord, you're my strength. As Paul said, in my weakness, you become my strength. Therefore, I will boast in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. I ask for the empowerment right now, Holy Spirit, to rest on us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.